you turn to Romans chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that, Lord, just as we sing together, that you would speak to us through your word and plant your word deep in our hearts, renew our minds. Father, we're grateful for the inspired word that you breathed this word out and you gave it to men and seized them, Lord, and controlled them in such a way that while even using those frail human instruments, the, the end product was the veritable word of God. And it's the word of God that lives and will continue forever. Now one jot or tittle will pass away from your word, Lord, till all is fulfilled. And we know, Father, that in the end, we will discover, Father, that everything you have spoken is absolutely true, including the promises that you have laid in store for us. But right now, Lord, we walk a pilgrim's walk. We're strangers on our way home. Sometimes it's a long journey home. But by God's grace, Father, the good work that you begin in each one of us will continue until the day of our redemption. So I pray now, Father, that we would just marvel at your wisdom and your glory and your power. And that, Lord, we would, would bow down before you in our hearts so that this, this act of worship coming together under your word will be acceptable in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 10.23. This is a verse I told you to put to memory last week, so now we'll see if you know it. All right? No cheating. Now you, you can today. All right? But I hope some of you memorized it. Let's say it together. Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. He will forever be faithful. And God uses faithful men and faithful women. And Paul was such a man. Paul was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a church planter. He was a missionary. And he was a tent maker by trade. And all of these things were his service to God. So I titled this message, The Heart of a Servant of God. And we can all apply these qualities and should to our own personal lives because we are all servants of God. And in verses 14 through 20 here in chapter 15, we get a glimpse into the heart that Paul had for people and for ministry. If you love ministry, you love people. If you love people, you love ministry. Long time ago, Charles Schultz in his little comic strip, he had, had Lucy coming to Lioness, who had aspirations of being a doctor. And she says to him, you would never be a good doctor. And he said, why? And she says, because you don't, you don't love enough. And he says, why, I love all mankind. It's people I can't stand. If you love God, you love people. If you love people, you love ministry. Paul loved both because he had a great love for Jesus. So what we'd like to do this morning is look at some of the traits, qualities, or marks of a servant's heart in his life, and then ask ourselves the question, are these things true in, in our lives? So the first that we will see here, if you're in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Now I'm going to read all the way through 20 and then come back. Now I myself am confident, brethren, concerning you, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, 
able to admonish one another. We're in Romans 15, 14. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So the first quality I draw your attention to here that we see in the heart of a servant of God is that he is an encourager in verse 14. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. If you study the life of Paul, you will discover that even when he was experiencing difficult trials personally, he was still very grateful for the good spiritual fruit in his lives that he saw in other people. And he constantly exhorted them to, to press on, to keep pressing on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ. So look at the commendation. He recognized their goodness. Eaton's Bible Dictionary says this word here, goodness, is not a mere passive quality, but the deliberate preference of right to wrong, the firm and persistent resistance of all moral evil, and the choosing and the following of moral good. Agathosuni is the Greek word. Agathos is the Greek word for good. And this is goodness for the benefit of other people. Not goodness simply for the sake of appearing virtuous. Maybe Paul had the, the particular incident here in mind of the clash between the weak and the strong. And, and he, he was commending them I believe, who were following these instructions and, and not looking down on those who were weak. But in Exodus 34, chapter 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud, this is on Mount Sinai, and stood with him there, Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and no abounding in goodness and truth. We, we have a God who is good. And he is good all the time. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5.22. And it results in acts of kindness. Kindness. Good people are kind by nature. So that's intrinsic to this word goodness is kindness. And look, we need a lot of kindness in the world today. It's interesting. I was studying this this week, and then I forgot when it was Friday or yesterday. I heard a radio program, and the girl on the program was talking about kindness and how when they do kindness surveys, they come back. Everybody invariably thinks they're kind. And the reality is they're not. Not everybody is kind. So she was talking about a 30-day kindness challenge. And I thought about it, and here was, the, here was the first thing to put into practice. Think of somebody right now that who annoys you. Maybe somebody you really don't like, right? We all have people that, you know, we just really don't care for. Maybe they're in your own family, you know. You know, your, your Uncle Joe or Aunt, ha you know, Aunt, 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 whatever the name might be. People you don't just really care for. That person at work come into your mind right now. Somebody else. So the kindness challenge is this. For 30 days, maybe it's me. 
Maybe it's somebody in this church that you know care for. The first step of the kindness challenge is this. For the next 30 days, resist saying anything negative to that person or critical to that person or about him to other people. See if you can do it. The second step would be to look for opportunities to say something kind to them, something commendable rather than critical. And then the third step would be even to take it further and to do a positive act of kindness toward them. Maybe doing something for them at work. Maybe, maybe taking them a little gift. We need a lot of kindness, right? We all fall short. Kindness is goodness. And God displays his goodness through his people. Second Thessalonians 1.11, Paul said this, We also pray for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. He spoke repeatedly in that verse about the goodness of God. And you know, Romans 2, 4, we studied this very early on in our study. Paul said it was the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Right? It's no merits of my own, right? It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It was the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God that led to our repentance. And in Ephesians 5a, goodness shares some good company here with light, righteousness, and truth. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness. That's the natural state of man's heart. But now you are light in the Lord. All right, God spoke his word to you, the word of truth in the gospel, and it brought you out of that darkness, just as he spoke a word in creation and light came into the world. In the beginning, there was light. So he says, walk as children of light. That's the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Notice, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And really, that's, that's our aim in life. That's our primary aim, to do that which is pleasing or acceptable to God. You'll never please people completely. So don't try. You do your best to please God and you'll be right by people. Secondly, Paul commended them for their growth in knowledge. Now, I believe that this knowledge includes all the instructions that he had given them in this book because he, he had not visited with them, but not only his instruction, but what they had learned from others. Because when Paul when Paul wrote this, this was already an established church. You go to chapter 16 and you read about the different home churches there and Priscilla and Aquila. And there were different ways in which these people were being brought up in the truth. So he was, he was commending them for their growth in knowledge. Now, knowledge has two aspects to it. There is the intellectual aspect of knowledge that we gain from the Word of God. And then there is the experiential application of that knowledge to our life. So you really haven't learned anything, spiritually speaking, until it's evident in the practice of your life. And then the third thing that Paul commended them for was their ability and desire to admonish. And he uses the word nutheteo, one another. Nuthetic counseling is directive counseling. Probably familiar, some of you, with Jay Adams and the Nuthetic counseling movement. But the three ideas found in the word nuthesia are, here they are, confrontation, concern, and change. Then must be confronted wherever you find it in your own life and wherever you see it in the life of a brother and sister in Christ. It has to be confronted at some level. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if, if you see any man overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But notice what he says. In a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Kindness. Considering yourself 
lest you also be tempted. Listen, we all have our problems, right? Every single one of us. The man in the mirror is the man you see. The woman in the mirror is the woman you see. The man you see in the mirror of God's word is the man you are. The woman you see in the mirror of God's word is the woman you really are. People, people can see you and I and judge us to be this or that. But what we really are is the man or the woman that we are as we live out the word of God. Nothing more and nothing less. So the goal of Nuthetic Counseling is change in behavior. It's directive counseling. The focus is not on the problem, it's on the solution. It's not on the past, it's on the present and a godly future. Now, in my experience, the solution is not really difficult to understand, but it's difficult to put into practice because of ingrained bad habits and behavior. I don't know if you have discovered this yet, but the sin nature is a very stubborn thing, right? Doesn't want to let its grip go on us. And sometimes sin does very horrible things to people in the form of abuse. So when you're counseling people and trying to encourage people and so forth, you, you just can't stack up Bible verses for them. Sometimes the abuse is incredibly deep. Drug abuse, physical abuse, mental behavior, mental illness. And the best you can, you deal with these issues in the light of God's word, and that takes wisdom, compassion, and love. Now, I'm just going to say a note, because sometimes people think, well, all you need is the Bible. All, all these people with mental illness problems, they just need scripture and they need verses and so forth. And, and that's the world. And you don't go to that realm. You know, God's word is sufficient. And I believe God's word is sufficient. But I also believe that people have very serious problems going on sometimes in their brain. And you aren't going to touch it with Bible verses. There is a pastor I know in uh, Texas. is. He has a son or a brother who is schizophrenia. So as a growing up, he knew what it was like to live with a schizophrenic. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a schizophrenic. I, I've, I have. I've spoken to one who was a paranoid schizophrenic, and you can quote Bible verses all day long. My wife works in behavior health for many, many years. It's real. So he wrote this. He says, I delivered a sermon one tall call, once called Psychiatry, Voodoo, or Virtue. Actually, it is a trick title representing two erroneous extremes. Some Christians can see no good in psychiatry. They regard it as totally of the devil. Others can see no flaws in psychiatry. They act as if it offers a new, it's a, a new priesthood, kind of like a new religion with new answers equal to scripture. So those are your extremes. Voodoo to virtue. The truth lies in creating a third option. Limited value. Doesn't mean there's no value. It means there's limited value. By the way, just, just everything we do is limited, right? Your doctor has limited value. He could only do so much for you. I, as a pastor, have limited value. I could only do so much for you. That's the way we operate. That's, that's the reality. He says this then. Psychiatry is not all virtue, but neither is it completely voodoo. Sensible people will recognize psychiatry's limited value in the field of medicine. While the psychiatric and psychological professions can be legitimately criticized from a Christian perspective, it does not follow that Christians must reject all truth 
where all help from that field or discipline of learning. Secular mental health experts help us most by describing human problems and treating some very genuine medical conditions. And that's true. And the people who are suffering from mental illness, man, they live in a world of their own and they're ignored. And we, we need to reach them and pray for them as best that we can and pray for those people who have to care for them. Sometimes their only family. It's very, very, very difficult. So the goal of pneumatic counseling is change. I would just say this to you this morning, though. Every Christian, as they reach a certain point of growth in their spiritual life, should be competent to counsel from Scripture. You don't need a professional clergy to do this. I, I shouldn't have to bear the brunt of it. Anyone mature in the Word of God should be competent to counsel someone else from Scripture. And then if you have questions or whatever it is, you may need you know, to go to somebody else, get their opinion on things, their wisdom on things. Competent to counsel, are you? Sometimes counsel takes the form of praise. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and notice what it says, admonishing, this is counseling, this is the same word, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So don't, don't mistake what I said. I believe Bible verses, the scripture is powerful. And boy, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in, in <clears throat> pictures of silver. You ought to have those verses available to share with other people. And, and you can make a big influence in their life. You can change them completely. Maybe take them out of the discouragement that they're in. Maybe it's a song that you share with them. So we can all do this. We can all counsel to some extent. Secondly, <laughs> A servant of God prompts further spiritual growth in believers. Look at verse 15. So he's commending them in verse 14. And then in verse 15, he says, nevertheless, and you can underscore that word, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. I have some water. Yeah, thank you. I said underline that word nevertheless. That's a big nevertheless. Every time you see it, it's usually big. You could go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 4 and verse 20, for instance. And God will, sometimes Jesus will commend the churches there for the good things that they have done. But then what does he say a couple times? What does he say? Nevertheless, this I have against you. So Paul even though he had praised them, he wasn't content with the knowledge that the Roman Christians had gained. He was always pushing them further. And he wanted them to understand the full implication, I believe, of his ministry and their part in, in his ministry. They needed to be reminded of what God was doing through Paul to reach the Gentiles. He really wanted them to be part of it. And listen, we all need to be reminded of the truth of God's words. Of God's word, every time it's preached and spoken to you. The things I preached to you last week have already been forgotten to a great extent. You ever think about that? Already forgotten. We have, all of us have short-term spiritual memories that need constant exposure to God's word and sound doctrine. The reason that I repeat myself so much to you is 
not because I have a memory problem. It's because you have a memory problem. Now, I do have a memory problem. We all do, right? But that's why I say some sometimes the same things over and over and come at it from different ways. So at some point in time, maybe maybe something, maybe some portion of it will stick, will stick. Next, we see here the work that Paul accomplished was done by God's grace, if you're following the outline. And the Romans needed to be mindful of that, lest they begin to think more highly of themselves than, than they ought to think. Listen, everything that we have, everything that God allows us to do, he equips us to do. Mark that down. Everything that God wants you to do for him, he will equip you to do it. He is not asking something impossible from you. If he wants you, and we know he does want you to be a good husband and a good father, he will equip you to do that. Want you to be a good mother and a good wife, he will equip you to do that through his word. And listen, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. That's what Paul is really getting at here. No other biblical writer wrote as extensively on the grace of God as Paul did once that grace of God touched his life. He called the gospel that he preached, not the gospel, you know, of, of originating with Paul, but the gospel of the grace of God. The grace of God. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the grace of God which he has given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another builds on it. According to the grace of God given to me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet, what does he say? Not I. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. In Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, Paul writes of the mystery. The mystery. A mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden in the past, but revealed in God's time. So he talks about a mystery that was hidden in the past, but then was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And what was that mystery, Paul? that was hidden in the old dispensation, but revealed to the apostles and the prophets, that Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body, that's the church, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister or servant, and then he says this, according to the grace, to the grace of God given to me, by the affecting effective working of his power. He saw ministry as a gracious gift to him. And ministry is a gracious gift to all of us. It's a privilege. Stop and think about this for a moment. To be called to work with God in reaching the lost, in changing people's lives by the power of his word. To be called to edify other Christians, to build them up, to, to comfort them. This is a special blessing that God is, God is really giving you if, you if you take hold of it and see ministry as a blessing, not just as a chore. Paul went further than that. He saw his ministry as a servant of God, as a sacrificial offering to God as a believer priest. Listen, the Roman Catholic Church has their priesthood. It's not a biblical priesthood, but we are priests, all of us. He says in verse 16 or Romans 15, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Now notice what he says after that, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit of God. Both of the words minister and ministering in that verse 
have the idea of temple service that the priests of the Old Testament would perform. And what was their chief duty? They offered what? Sacrifices to God as Old Testament priests. But in Revelation 1.6, it says this, he has made us, he has made us, that's you and I, kings and priests unto God. What a privilege. First Peter 2.4, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chosen by God, Isaiah 42.1, the elect one, precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a spiritual edifice, a temple, a holy priesthood. And what do we do as priests of God? Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those spiritual sacrifices would include prayer. Every time you pray, you're offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God. Every time you praise God, you're offering up a spiritual sacrifice. Every time you give, to give, to further the gospel, you're, you're offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God. Every time you serve in some capacity, even however insignificant would it seem, is a spiritual sacrifice to God. And then you have Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And listen, we could never offer that kind of a sacrifice up to God, the sacrifice of our life, the sacrifice of our body. If we're stuck in the world, if we're allowing the world to conform us to its mold. And listen, I really especially want to tell the younger people here, don't buy everything that the world is trying to sell you. That you have to be this, you have to have this, you have to look like this. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. That's the world. Don't let it press you into its mold. Let God's word transform you and change you. And that occurs, Paul said, by the renewing of your mind. That comes only from God's word. That's the only place. And Paul made it clear that his offering up of the Gentiles was the work of the Holy Spirit through him and in him. He said it was sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified is a simple word. We means set apart. That's all it means. It's set apart. But it indicates here that the Gentiles were truly converted. Many of these Gentiles were con converted. So it was an acceptable offering to God by Paul as a believer priest. Works done by human effort, which we call the flesh, are not sweet-smelling aromas to God. They're not sweet-smelling sacrifices to God. They could be done for self-satisfaction or self-recognition, but not for God's glory. And listen, there are a lot of people today in preaching the gospel or claiming to preach the gospel or teaching or whatever, and really, a lot of it is all about them and their empire. It's not really all about the glory of God. For Paul, it was all about the glory of God. Now, it's the work of the Holy Spirit through Paul. That's what he was saying. That does not mean that you and I do not have to put forth an effort in the Christian life as a believer. We do. But our half effort has to be done in concert with the Holy Spirit of God because the flesh profits what? Nothing. The flesh profits nothing. 
Colossians 1.28, Paul said this, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That was his goal. To this end, I also what? Labor. Striving. According to his working, which works in me mightily. Here's how the NIV translates that verse. Next in verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That's the Holy Spirit of God working in him. So my question to you this morning, is God, through the Holy Spirit, powerfully working in you and in me? Listen, if God's Spirit is powerfully working in us like he was in Paul, you will be no ordinary Christian. You will make a difference. Not because of some gifts, special gifts or talents or abilities you have. God does give gifts. God does give, give special abilities to people. And then there's these natural abilities that people learn throughout life. But that won't get you very far, spiritually speaking. You won't influence many people to God's glory if it's all you. It has to be done in union with the Holy Spirit of of God, And that's why a servant of God gives God all the glory for what he has done. Verse 17, look at what he says here in, in Romans chapter 15. Therefore, I have reason to glory, verse 17, in Christ Jesus, in the things which pertain to God. I have reason to boast, is what he's saying, in Christ Jesus, in all the things which pertain to God. And then the next verse, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished. And I circled this through me. Through me. In word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Now, if you study this book, you know that Paul, in prior passages, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, he condemns boasting in one's own achievements. And a lot of people like to boast in their achievements. We really have nothing to boast of. Because what do you, what do you have that has, you have not received from God? It recognizes that his priestly ministry to the Gentiles was not just of his own doing. So therefore he boasts, he says, in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, But of him, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us, Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who what? Glories. Or he who boasts. Let him boast in the Lord. Let him glory in the Lord. And actually in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14. Or yep, yeah, verse 14 Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little saying that I wrote down. but It's little, but it's significant. And it's, it goes like this. It is little things through little people that God gets done most of what he gets done. You know, we like to think of the big names, right? But it's, it is little things through little people that God gets done most of what he gets done. Oh, that's good. Because you and I, we're just little. Right? And we do little things. But little things collectively by lots of people are a big thing. A big thing. It talks about the obedience of the Gentiles. And one reason Paul boasted in God was because of the immensity of the task before him. God called them to go to the Gentiles, these, these pagan, heathen people with horrible practices. It was a difficult task. Spiritual work is demanding work. And Paul knew that very well. 
He spoke of the obedience of the Gentiles as the obedience of faith. Romans 1 forces, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. And then he adds, for his name. That's the task. The obedience to faith or faith in Christ among all the nations for his name, meaning for his glory. Not for the glory of any man. And listen to me. I mentioned a little bit about this. God will equip you to do what he wants you to do. Things done for God's glory have God's power. In verse 19, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul had. Paul has special powers given to him that you and I don't have. In Acts 19.11, it says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left him and the evil spirits went out from them. Now, now why, why was that? Well, Paul tells us that. He tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 12. He said, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you all with perseverance. And then he says, in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Those incredible miracles that you read about in the New Testament were performed by an apostle or in the presence of an apostle or a delegate from the apostle, from an apostle, the original apostles. And they were confirmation of their apostolic ministry. That's why Paul says the signs of an apostle, the confirmation of my authority as an apostle were worked among you in signs and miraculous things. We have no apostles today like the original apostles because one of the qualifications was they had to seen to have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Also, right? He says he called himself an apostle born out of due time because he saw him on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ. So that ministry ended back then. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Once the church was established, once we had the full canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, some of those things passed away. Moose said this, Paul can legitimately claim Jerusalem as the geographical beginning point of his ministry. You know, I tend to think that, believe it or not, Jerusalem is the geographical point of the earth, center of the earth, spiritually speaking. So he goes from Jerusalem to this Illyricum, the outer limit. So from Jerusalem to the outer limit. And geographically, if you have a Bible atlas, it's it's the territory known as Northwest Macedonia. And that further part, Northwest part, is what used to be Yugoslavia and contains modern-day Croatia, Bosnia, and Albania. So this was the, the, the extent to which it was uh, in the sphere of his calling as an apostle. But notice what he says. He says he was faithful to his calling. From Jerusalem to the furthest parts of the Northwest Territory, Paul was faithful. He says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Fully preached the gospel of Christ. Douglas Moose claims that he has brought to completion in the regions designated his own special apostolic task of planting strategic churches. So I put this down as the last quality or characteristic. A servant of God does not shy away from difficult tasks. He says in verse 20, Then so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where night Christ was named, lest I would build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not amounts, they will see, and those whom have not heard will understand. You know, Paul, Paul the Apostle, was a pioneer missionary. He wanted to go where Christ 
had never been named. He was a pioneer missionary. And pioneers are people with arrows in their back. Right? Paul did not always minister to unreached people. We know that. We know that. Went back, visited churches that he had planted before and so forth. So when he says where Christ has not been named, he means places where there are no real believers worshiping God, no Christian community or witness. And that takes us really to what the ultimate goal or aim of missions is. The ultimate goal of missions must be Christian maturity and reproducing churches. Building up people in other cultures, bringing them to Christ, strengthening them, teaching them, so that then they can go reach their own people there and start churches and reproduce churches. And it goes on and on and on like that. You understand, did, you, did you know that today there are about 7,300 unreached people groups in the world? 7,300. Now, a group is considered unreached when there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to engage this people group with church planning. Can't go any further. So technically speaking, the percentage of evangelical Christians in this people group considered unreached is less than 2%. The work of global evangelism and church planting is daunting. It's ongoing. World evangelization, making disciples of all nations is a difficult task. Jeremy Rankin, he wrote an article, I liked it. He says, a popular and common myth is that the church is responsible for reaching its own community and those closest to us as a prerequisite to missions and reaching the nations. And you've probably all heard that. But Jesus did not say in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then is not in the text, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. There is not a sequential process in missions. Our witness is to be simultaneously reaching the ends of the earth. Missions is not reaching and winning as many individuals as possible, though God wants us to share our faith and win the lost. It is by extending our witness cross-culturally and geographically that disciples would be made of all nations. This is God's mission. And missions is not missions until it's fulfilling God's mission to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. People who have never heard. Isaiah 52, 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall not shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they have not heard, they will consider. And that's, that's our task as a supporting church for world evangelization. So that people who haven't seen the truth of God's word and haven't heard the truth of God's word will hear and will see. So I want to say this to you. You and I are not missionaries. Not in the biblical understanding of a missionary who was involved in cross-cultural church planting. That's difficult work. That's taking yourself, leaving everything. That's going to another country, another culture, learning the language, embedding yourself in that community, getting to know how they think, the foods they eat, everything about them, becoming one with them to reach them for Jesus Christ. And then help them build and establish a church that can reach other people and build and establish other churches. And that's the way it works. So in a biblical sense of the word, missionary, a sent one, just like an apostle is the sent one, 
sent to do a particular thing. Now, we are to all do the work of an evangelist, right? But I just want you to see it a little bit differently. Because I think it really, if we just say, oh, we're all missionaries, it really cheapens what those missionaries really do and accomplish. And it's very, very difficult. So I say this in closing. We may not all be missionaries like Paul. We may not all be church planters like Paul. We certainly are not apostles. But we are all called to be faithful servants of God with the heart of a servant, just as we've seen here in Romans chapter 15. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Your word is truth. I, I pray, God, that we will take some things from this message. Much of it we will not remember. But maybe we will take something. Maybe just the thought that you choose to, to use insignificant people like us to be part of making a big difference in the world. Whatever it is, Lord, that you brought to our minds or to our heart, may we, may we put it into practice in our life. May we offer up those spiritual sacrifices to you, prayer and praise and service and sacrifice of our bodies. And Lord, may we be filled with goodness and knowledge and have the ability to counsel and to comfort and to encourage other people. Lord, there's truth here for all of us. Some truth. Help us to take it and make a difference in the lives of people all around us. Help us to be kind to other people. Help us to stop being so critical. Lord, many of the people that we're critical of, they don't know Christ. And but by the grace of God, we would be the same. So it was your word and the working of your spirit that made a difference in our life. Help us to pray for them who know not Christ that their lives might be changed. I thank you for each one. And I pray, God, that truly the Spirit of God will lay these truths to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.